and the, the bridge. Woo! All up in my sermon today, Kobe, and I appreciate that. Uh, and I've told you guys this many, many times before. We don't plan that. That's the Holy Spirit doing what He does. Um, I want to preface this this morning the way I always do. We've got some new faces here today. And, and so um, you guys that, that are here regularly, you're going to get tired of me hearing me say this uh, every week, but I'm going to continue to do it. Um, and I even do it for myself as I begin in the beginning of the week with, with studying. I think that's mine yelling. I apologize. Um, <laughs> uh, as I begin studying, I write at the top of my notes um, for that particular week for our passage um, that we are joining God to set people free. Because as I study this book of Exodus, I want my mind to be um, in this vision that God has given us that, that we are to be the Moses and the Aaron to the people that God has put in our lives. That we are, as we are abiding in Christ, as we are pursuing Him, that we are going to just by nature going to be joining God to set people free from, from slavery to fear like we just sang about, from, from sin, from hopelessness, from brokenness. That that is going to be a natural result of of an outflow, an outpouring of what God is doing in our lives. Um, and so, for those of you who are new, our, our, our focus for this, for this part of the year so far has been uh, studying the book of the Exodus, um, but specifically in, in looking at uh, how God and Moses was used by God to set people free. And then our application is how, are, how is God calling us as individuals and as a body to join Him to set others free. So, the last two weeks we spent looking at the Passover, um, specifically in the fact that as God is doing these miracles in Egypt to, to, to help the people of Egypt and to help Pharaoh to understand that he is the God, you know, they had many gods that they worshiped, but that he is the one, the only, the true God. God is doing these miraculous things that lead up to this final miracle that is called the Passover. Um, and so we spent two weeks looking at that, and one of the, some of the things that we talked specifically about last week is that the Passover was bigger than just a moment. That for us in our lives, when God does a work, often because we are so tunnel vision on ourselves, that we assume that that work that God is doing is just about us in that moment, and that oftentimes that when God is working in our lives, it's a lot bigger than we are, and, it, and the ramifications of what God is doing in our lives is bigger than, than the scope of what we can understand. And this is certainly true in this book of Exodus. That is still my daughter yelling, and I'm sorry. <laughs> it's distracting me, so I can't even imagine what it's doing for you. Um, so anyway, God in this moment of, of the Exodus, when God does this miraculous work, this very tragic work, it's much bigger than just the moment. It's not just about God setting the Israelites free from slavery to Egypt in that moment. Yes, that was part of it. But what we also know, because we live on this side of the cross, is that God is preparing them to understand what he's ultimately going to do in order to redeem and to free all of us from the slavery of sin. We looked at how Passover is a call to worship and that as Moses and Aaron are communicating to the people of Israel what God is about to do, they didn't even, God had not even done it yet. But because of their experiences in the previous nine plagues, because they had walked with the Lord and they had seen him over and over again say, I'm going to do this thing, and then he did it, that experience led them when they get to this final plague that Moses and Aaron share what God's about to do, and it caused the people in that moment to, to celebrate and worship because now it's happening. This thing that they've been looking forward to for 430 years is about to take place. And then last week, we looked at last week how... Passover is a love story from God. And, you know, a lot of times when we look at the story of Exodus and we see the death and the destruction that happens, like our mind doesn't immediately go to love story, right? That's not what our initial impression is when we see a story like this. 
But ultimately, we see that God is doing something amazing, and that it's a lot, lot bigger. And that is so distracting. <laughs> and I'm sorry, I'm trying. So, God's doing this incredible thing, and He's doing it because He loves His people. So, today we're going we're gonna to start in Exodus chapter 12, and we're going to go uh, through 28 through 51. So, we're going to finish out chapter 12, and then we're going to jump into the first part of chapter 13. So, read with me today. Pull it up. Uh, it'll be on the screen, but you can also... Pull it up on your device or on, uh, in your Bible if you have one of those. Okay, so starting in verse 28. Then the people of Israel went and did so as the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron, so they did. At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon and all the firstborn of the livestock. And Pharaoh rose up in the night, he and all his servants and all the Egyptians, and there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house where someone was not dead. Then he summoned Moses and Aaron by night and said, Up, go out from among the people, both you and the people of Israel, and go serve the Lord as you have said. Take the flocks of your herds as you have said, and be gone, and bless me also. The Egyptians were urgent with the people to send them out of the land in haste, for they said, We shall all be dead. So the people took their dough before it was leavened, their kneading bowls being bound up in their cloaks on their shoulders. The people of Israel had also done as Moses told them, for they had asked the Egyptians for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. And the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians, so that they let them have what they asked. Thus they plundered the Egyptians. And the people of Israel journeyed from Ramesses to Sukkoth, about 6,000 men on foot besides women and children. A mixed multitude also went up with them, and very much livestock, both flocks and herds. And they baked unleavened cakes and of dough, which they had brought out of Egypt, for it was not leavened, because they were thrust out of Egypt and could not wait. Nor had they prepared any provisions for themselves. The time that the people uh, of Israel lived in Egypt was 430 years. At the end of 430 years, on that very day, all the host of the Lord went out from the land of Egypt. It was a night of watching by the Lord to bring them out of the land of Egypt so that this same night is a night of watching kept to the Lord by all the people of Israel throughout their generations. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, This is the statute of the Passover. No foreigner shall eat of it, but every slave that is bought for money may eat of it after you have circumcised him. No foreigner or hired worker may eat of it. It shall be eaten in one house. You shall take shall not take any of the flesh outside the house and you shall not break any of its bones all the congregation of Israel shall keep it if a stranger shall sojourn with you and would keep the Passover to the Lord let all his males be circumcised then he may come and keep near and keep it he shall be as a native of the land but no uncircumcised person shall eat of it there shall be one law for the native and for the stranger who sojourns among you all the people of Israel did just as the Lord commanded Moses and Aaron. And on that very day, the Lord brought the people out of Israel and into the land of, uh, out of the land of Egypt by their host. All right, so we've been building up to this all this time, and finally we're there. God does the miraculous work. He goes through, and those that obeyed God and put the, the blood of the Lamb over their doors, uh, the, as God came through, the angel of death came through, those that had the blood were spared and those who did not were killed, okay? So here's where I want to start today. I want us to understand something. God is point number one. God is always going to do what he says no matter what the cost. When God begins a work, he's always going to complete that work. If he tells you he's going to do something, he's going to do it, 
okay? We talked about a little bit two weeks ago how sometimes when God says he's going to do something, it, it may not look like it in the moment. You may be caught up in a place where you're going, God, I hear what you're saying. I see, I see it in your word, but I'm not seeing it with my eyes. My heart is with you, but my mind, my eyes are not seeing what you're doing. But if God begins that work, it's going to happen. And it may not happen in the time frame that you're thinking it will, but it will happen. Sometimes God gives us a word and it's, it's a plan that he's going to do. And in our minds, because of the culture that we live in, we think, oh, God said it, it's happening right now. And that may not, may not be God's intention. And so we can't, we can't let ourselves get uh, frustrated when things aren't happening in the schedule or in the time frame that we want them to be. Remember, God told Moses all of this was coming, right? And there was a lot that happened before it actually did. But if you remember in chapter 7, verses 2 through 6, uh, Moses and God had this conversation. It says, You shall speak all that I command you, and your brother Aaron shall tell Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go out of this land. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my host, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. Moses and Aaron did so. They did just as the Lord commanded them. So God is, is telling Moses in advance, you're going to go and you're going to tell Pharaoh to let your people go and he's not going to listen to you. And it's not until I do this great work that finally Pharaoh is going to send you guys away. So Moses is prepared, okay? And look, he says that he's going to stretch out his hand on his people. And, and we may not speak that way. That may not be the way we phrase it. You know, I'm not going to come up to Paul and be like, I'm fixing to stretch out my hand on you, okay? Because Paul wouldn't know what I was talking about, and neither would you. But Pharaoh was very aware of what that meant. And so when Moses and Aaron are standing before Pharaoh and they're saying, look, let my people go. We, we talked about in life group, in our life group last week, how Moses, when he tells Pharaoh what's about to happen and Pharaoh doesn't listen, Moses runs out in anger. And we talked about how he's got to be angry because Moses knows what's about to happen. And he knows that it's the pride of Pharaoh that's, that's going to cause this because he refuses to let people go. Okay? So Moses knows. Pharaoh knows the consequences of his refusal. Okay? Even though Pharaoh doesn't have the context of the knowledge, he... he he knows something big is about to happen because he's just seen these nine things. He may not have the relationship with God that Moses has, but he is aware of what's about to happen. Okay, and we have to consider as well that Scripture tells us that God is going to harden Pharaoh's heart. So not only is it Pharaoh's pride that's going to cause this, but God himself. Okay, now I don't know about you, but that phrase bothers me a little bit. The fact that God is going to cause, he's going he's to create this thing that's going to happen where thousands of people are going to die and thousands of animals are going to die. Does that bother you? It should. It bothers me, okay? And I've been thinking about this for the last week or, so, or the last month or so, and Bethany and I have kind of had conversations on and off, and I'll be honest with you, like my initial reactions, even when we were doing, talking about this in the class in the Exodus, my reaction is, well, God is God and he can do what he wants, okay? But really, that's a cop-out. That's me not really considering the ramifications of what's going on, and so... As of this week, as I've studied this scripture, for me, I couldn't, I couldn't address this passage. I couldn't talk about what it means for us to join God to set people free without dealing with this issue, right? I need to, I need to, to get into this and understand 
the purpose of why God did this the way that he did it. And I've got some observations I want to share with you. If you've got the notes, Bethany has some of those in the back, or they're back there by Kyle, if you want to copy those. Um, I've got five or six things here that I want to share, just things that as I'm studying the scripture that I felt like the Lord is speaking to me about it. Okay, so here are the observations. Number one, God wasn't just proving himself to Israel and Egypt. Word of this is going to stretch out across the known world. Okay, Egypt at this time is the most powerful army, the most powerful nation in that region of the world. And when God does this thing and not only kills that many people, but then also we see that he, God defeats the armies of Pharaoh, that's not a contained, isolated incident that only Israel and Egypt are going to know about that, right? Everybody in that region, and we talked about in the Exodus class how there's constant turmoil in that region over these trade routes, okay? And, and all of these people that are warring constantly, all of a sudden the greatest army is defeated in one day through this miraculous event. So God, the word of who God is and his power and his might is not contained to just Israel and Egypt, but God, through this, through this plague, through this miracle, is making himself known to everyone. Okay, God is revealing himself to, to the world in a way that we haven't seen up until this point. Number two, anytime that people die, it is a tragic event, and it is a big deal to God. We see in Scripture, um, in this text specifically, that for the Egyptians, this was a tragic event. This was painful for them. In the middle of the night, everyone in the town, everyone in the, in, in the nation was woken up because there was death in their household. That's a major deal. Okay? And we need to understand that anytime there's a loss of life, that is also tragic to God. One of my favorite scriptures is in Psalms, and I can't remember the reference now. Does that make it my favorite? I don't know. Anyway, in Psalms it says that when we mourn, when we cry, God counts our tears as if they are in a bottle. Look, God understands our suffering. He knows what it means to suffer because He eventually gives His Son up for us. And when there is a loss of life, that affects God as well. He doesn't choose to do this just because He can and He's not cold-hearted about it. But when there is death, it is important to God. Okay? Number three, while some died, others were spared. And for Israel, this simultaneous action is a major focus of the Passover. See, for me, I often either I focus just on the death or I focus on just those who didn't die. But for, for Israel, they see both things, right? They're celebrating and remembering that God loved them enough to spare their firstborn, okay? And as God, He has the authority to wipe all life as He did in the days of Noah, you remember, the world was, was full of sin, and so God destroyed everyone through a flood except for Noah and his family. God has that authority because he is God, all right? But this time he chooses to spare some, okay? Number four, God through this act is giving Israel two different perspectives on what it takes to redeem people. He's given them the, the perspective of death, that in order for redemption to happen, someone or something must be sacrificed. And then the second is a life perspective. That God, because of His love for Israel, spared and is redeeming them. So two different perspectives that He gives them. Number five, both heaviness and hope are felt during the celebration of Passover. You can't have one without the other. They both inform one another. It brings hope because God is rescuing Israel. Okay, And this gives us some insight into what God is trying to do here. 
you can't, you can't really understand what it means to be full of joy and happy if you have not also experienced tragedy. And God is giving perspective to the Israelites. He's saying, look at this thing that I'm doing because I love you, okay? And this, the last one, and for me, is the most, I feel like is the most important part of what God is doing here, is God is causing Israel to be emotionally invested in what he is doing. He's being emotionally invested. Our tendency is to emotionally distance ourselves from things that are difficult, right? Isn't that our natural result? People make fun of me a lot of times. I don't watch scary movies, okay? I don't watch them. You know why? I got enough stress in my life. I don't need more. That's going to cause some emotional feelings I don't need to deal with, all right? I don't like really like sobby love stories, like the notebook that everyone's seen. I've never seen it. You know why? I don't want to be emotionally invested in that. I don't need that in my life. That's our nature. But through this act, God is making people be emotionally invested. Let me explain how that happens. I guarantee you, Scripture does not say this, but because I'm a father, I guarantee you there is not a person in the nation of Israel that did not consider that could have been mine. I could have been the one that lost the child. And so when they celebrate the Passover, there's a lot of emotion that's going on there. Look, we can't live our lives emotionally disconnected from the people around us. If we're going to join God in setting people free, it requires that we are emotionally invested in what is going on in their lives. If if we're not intentional about investing in people and investing in their lives, then they're gonna, we're just going to live life and we're going to look back and go, wow, a year's passed. And what have I really accomplished in terms of God's call for my life? If we're not intentional about how we live, life is going to pass by us. If the things that break God's heart do not break our hearts, that's a big deal. Because you know what it says to me? If, I, if I'm examining myself and I see a situation that should break my heart and it didn't, that means there's an aspect of my life that I haven't let Jesus be a part of. That there is a part of, of my Savior that I don't know. Jesus opposes hopelessness, brokenness, pain. We see this as he's walking the earth. Okay? And there are people around us in our lives that find themselves in those situations we know those people you take just a moment and you can think of somebody that falls in that category or one just like it and God's intention for you and for me is to invest in those people and show them the love of God by doing that being invested in people's lives is going to be costly to us it's going to require a lot of our time you think about it somebody who's really struggling with something what do they need more than anything Most of the time, they need somebody to just be in the moment with them. They need somebody that can sit with them and say, I know this sucks, and I'm really, really sorry, but I am here with you. If we're going to join God to set people free, we have to be willing to do that. If we aren't investing in people, it's because we aren't allowing ourselves to see the reality that they live in, or at least we're just ignoring it because it's inconvenient. As I look at this story of the Passover and I dig into it, what I see is that God is setting this thing up where it is impossible for Israel to ignore 
what God just did. He is making them consider the ramifications and the cost that, it, that it, there was for them to be set free. If we aren't investing in people, it reveals the truth about where we've placed Jesus in our priorities. Right? Because if our relationship with Jesus isn't a priority, then we aren't able to be broken when Jesus is. Because we don't know that He's brokenhearted. If we're not abiding in Christ, then, then there are going to be things that happen around us that we are oblivious to because we've chosen to be. The fact that we are abiding, we say we're abiding people and we want to abide in Christ, if that is happening, the brokenness, the hopelessness that is in our lives around us is going to be evident. And there's going to be a desire in us to help with that because the joy and the hope that Christ brings lives in us. And I don't know about you, but when I see somebody that's struggling, my initial reaction, when I really see it, and my heart is broken because God's heart is broken, my reaction is to do something, anything. Because they're hurting. You know, we've talked a lot about the kids that live in this neighborhood and, and the importance of our ministry here. And I can tell you, there has been so many moments of brokenness where I, there's nothing I can do. When, when I see a teenager who's maybe 13 years old who made a bad decision and I, I and Bethany go stand before a judge with them as support because no one else will, there's a problem there's problems in these kids' lives. They didn't ask for that. The reason our ministry is the way it is here in this neighborhood is not because Bethany and I said, you know, we don't have enough to do in our life. Let's find another thing. It's because God put us here and we allowed the Lord to open our eyes and to see the brokenness, the hopelessness, the pain that is in this community and we can't help but pour ourselves out. And I'm not saying that we're the perfect example because Lord knows we are not. But what I'm saying is if we are really abiding in Christ, there's going to be some things that we see that break our hearts. And that is a good, good thing. Through this work of the Passover, God is, is making Israel learn to be emotionally invested. He is showing that sin and rebellion lead to death. He's showing that that. And he's establishing in Israel that if they will choose to obey God, if they will choose to pursue Him, what they're going to find is freedom and life. God made a promise to them and He kept His word. Last, last week, if, if you were here, Dario, our missionary from Honduras, was here and he shared some of, of what's going on in Honduras. And, and I was able to hit a couple of life groups this week that he was a part of. And, and he shared these stories of miracles that God is doing in their ministry there and has been for years. And I know that people get, get nervous when we throw the word miracles out there because we've been a little um, messed up by our culture in terms of what that means. Here in the gathering place, we have a different word. We, we call it God-exclusive activity, but it's the same thing, right? When God does something, it's a miracle. And Dario is sharing all these stories of this miraculous stuff that's happening. And I have to ask myself, why don't we have more of those stories? And if I examine my own life, I'll have to say it's because there are a lot of times, there are a lot of days where my top priority is not God. Don't just pursue God for what He does. Don't misunderstand my point here. My point is, is that if we will pursue the Lord and have faith that when He says something, He's going to do it, 
it's going to change our lives. Okay? Number two, God's work in our lives is his top priority for us. Therefore, it should be our top priority as well. So look at this. Israel leaves Egypt, okay? The, 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 the Passover happens. It works out just like God said it was going to in the middle of the night. Remember, he told them to eat the Passover feast with their sandals on, their belts fastened, and their staff in their hand? They did that. And in the middle of the night, as soon as people began to die, Pharaoh summons Aaron and Moses and says, get out of here. Take your families, take your livestock, your herds, just as you said, and you get out of here. And I can, I can understand that, right? This sense of urgency. And so Israel does exactly as they're told. They gather up all their things. They also ask the Egyptians for whatever they wanted. And therefore they plunder Egypt on their way out. They obeyed God, okay? So they, all of that happens. They leave. They don't even make it out of the region in which they are living. It says they stopped at Sukkoth. And that's, this is important. God doesn't even let them get out of Egypt before he stops them and says, let me tell you what just happened. God says, I'm going to set some ground rules. I'm going to establish something right now before they ever get a chance to forget what God just did. This is fresh. They're not even out of Egypt yet, and God stops them. God is establishing the basis of the relationship that he's building with them. By delivering them, God is claiming them as his own people. Now, that may make you nervous when we talk about someone owning someone else. Slavery's not good. That's not what God means here. But God is saying, you are my possession because you have been bought and paid for by the work that I am doing. And this was normal uh, context and conversation for people of this, of this age, okay? This is a normal thought process for them, okay? And, and here's what happens. By God doing that work, Israel becomes God's firstborn, okay? And they are brought into a special relationship with him. Consider this. God, through this act, just gave them a couple of things. Number one, he gave them a national existence. They were nothing. They were some slaves that lived in the land of Egypt. And through this act, God establishes them as their own nation. That's huge. Okay? They are distinguished among all of the other... Excuse me. They are... I can't talk. They are distinguished from all of the people because of the special relationship that they now have with God. God speaks to them. God delivers them. And, and later we see that God even begins to dwell with them when he gives them the instructions on how to build the temple. That God is, is not just the God of the world, but he is the God of this people. Okay? A few really important instructions that God gives them. And these are important because it, it kind of forms the foundation of what God is going to do long term. Okay? First of all, he says, you must be a part of Israel in order to participate in the Passover feast. And the reason for that is God is defining their identity. Not just, anybody can be a part of this, but if you're going to be a part of it, you have to commit. You have to be a part of it, okay? And, and the way that that happens is through circumcision because that is the sign that you are one of God's people. So God is a setting them aside as a people in which he's going to work, okay? And then he tells them, don't break any of the bones of the lamb when you sacrifice it. And that's foreshadowing. It's so that when Jesus eventually dies, the light bulb comes on and people go, oh, I see what you did there. Okay, this is God preparing his people. It's going to be the, the proverbial nail in the coffin, if you will, that when that happens, when Jesus dies and not a bone is broken, 
people understand. They see what God just did, okay? So God's laying the groundwork. Let's move into chapter 13. We're going to read, read verses 1 through 16, uh, and then we'll, uh, we'll head towards the end. Not ending yet. Don't get your bags ready. I still got some more to stay. All right? So verse 1, chapter 13. The Lord said to Moses, Consecrate to me all the firstborn. Whatever is the first who open the womb among the people of Israel, both man and of beast, is mine. Then Moses said to the people, Remember this day in which you came out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. For by a strong hand the Lord brought you out of this place. No leavened bread shall be eaten. Today in the month of Abib you are going out. And when the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Hivites, and Jebusites, which he swore to your fathers to give you a land flowing with milk and honey, you shall keep this service in this month. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread, and on the seventh day there shall be a feast of the Lord. Unleavened bread shall be eaten for seven days. No leavened bread shall be seen with you, and no leaven shall be seen with you in all your territory. You shall tell your son on that day, It is because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt. And it shall be to you as a sign on your hand and as a memorial between your eyes that the law of the Lord may be in your mouth. For with a strong hand the Lord brought you out of Egypt. You shall therefore keep this statute as it is appointed at its appointed time of the year uh, from year to year. When the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites as he swore to you and your fathers and shall give it to you. You shall set apart to the Lord all the first, open, to, first opens the womb. All the firstborn of your animals that are males shall be the Lord's. Every firstborn donkey shall, you shall redeem with a lamb or if you will not redeem it you shall break its neck. Every firstborn of man among your sons you shall redeem. And when in time you come you, to come, excuse me, and when in time to come your son asks you, what does this mean? You shall say to him, by a strong hand the Lord brought us out of Egypt from the house of slavery. For when Pharaoh stubbornly refused to let us go, the Lord killed all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both the firstborn of the man and the firstborn of the animals. Therefore I sacrifice to the Lord all the males that first opened the womb, but all the firstborn of my sons I redeem. It shall be as a mark on your hand or frontlets between your eyes, for by a strong hand the Lord has brought us out of Egypt. Look, a couple of things. We've read a lot of scripture over the last three Sundays, and none of it has been a repeat. But we see over and over and over again God giving these instructions. God saying, we just did this thing, I did this thing, I want you to eat this meal. I want you to worship in this way. And it's because God is setting the stage. It is so important for him that not only does this generation remember, but he wants it to be such a significant event that generation after generation after generation know what God did. Because people are going to ask questions. They're going to say, why do we do this in this way? I want to make sure that you caught what God is instructing them to do with all the firstborns. Okay? All the firstborns are to be killed, all of them, whatever animal, with two exceptions. The donkey can be redeemed by the blood of a lamb, and the children can be redeemed. His intention in that, okay, wrap your brain around that for a minute. Their livelihood is their livestock, and the firstborn of every generation is to be killed for the Lord. Why? Why do that? Why is that important? It's important so that all generations, this story will be passed on and on so the people will remember the price that was paid so that they could be set free. 
The purpose in this is so that people will remember. Because I promise you, as you're, if, you, if you have children, you know that they get to a certain age where they just ask a ton of questions. Charlie is in the why stage right now. Why? Because of this. Why? Because, and it just goes on and on and on and on and on. Okay? Kids ask questions. And this is such a strange thing. Why would you kill the firstborn? Because God has told us to do that so that we can remember the price that was paid. God is, is tying them back also. Remember the story of Abraham and Isaac. God is bringing them back to this understanding of there are things in your life that are precious. But God is more important than those things. Okay? There is nothing that should be more important to us than God. Not even our children. Did you hear me? There is nothing that should be more important in our lives than God, even our children. Our priorities should always stack in this way. God. And then family. Bethany's telling me I've been too quiet. God. And then family. Okay? God set the structure up in that way because if we get those reversed, bad things can tend to happen. You might be a, a really great mother and father and you can sustain things for a while, but when our priorities get out of whack, all of a sudden it all becomes about us and God gets further and further and further and further down the list. And, and I can tell you from experience, if you keep God in the top, your family will be taken care of. There will be moments, listen, there will be moments when that is hard to do, Okay? There are going to be nights where you got no sleep at all and getting up first thing in the morning and spending time with the Lord is just not going to happen. I find myself there a lot, okay? But God needs to be consistently in the top, okay? This is a, um, a reality that I had to come to in my own. And I've shared this story with some of you guys before, but when I was, I, I, you know how Facebook does those, you know, you have a memory. You know, I, I clicked on one of those yesterday and it brought me back like to the beginning of my Facebook timeline and, and all the pictures that I was uploading at that time. And, and it, man, just when I saw those pictures, it brought back so much emotion. But there was a picture in there of Sally and Luke, and they were so little bitty, okay? And we had just remodeled part of the house in order. We gave up our master bedroom. It was a goofy-looking, it was long and weird, but anyway. We gave up the master bedroom in our house, and we moved Sally and Luke into that room in preparation for foster care. And when I saw that picture, and I, they were, it was, we had just moved everything in, and they were playing in there and having a big time, excited about, you know, a possibility of a new brother or sister coming in. Didn't know it was going to be two at the time. But, uh, but I remember the emotion behind that event in our lives. I remembered the fear that I felt, because as a father, I feel like it's my duty to protect my children, right? And the idea of bringing in a child out of foster care was scary, because I didn't know what was coming with them. And I have these two precious, innocent little children that I wanted to protect from, from any tragedy or hurt or hardship or any of that stuff, right? And, but as I spent time praying through that and letting the Lord work those feelings in me and figure out why I felt the way I felt, what God finally got into my thick head was, well, those are not your children. Those are my children. And I've just given you that opportunity to take care of them and to love them. And I love them far more than you ever will. And any amount of pain or hardship they may endure is worth it so that these other children may understand how much I love them. And that's a hard pill to swallow, right? We don't ever want to think about putting our children in a place where they could be uh, in, in danger, right? 
But then I think of families like the Williams that, that loaded up all their children and were pregnant and moved to Uganda. Like to the people group that, y'all remember Joseph Coney? Anybody remember him? Okay, Joseph Coney's deal was he would go into a village at night, kill all the adults, kidnap all the children and turn them into child soldiers. Right, Joseph Coney? The only place he would not go in Uganda was this region called Karamoja. And, and he wouldn't go there because he was afraid of the people that lived there because they were warriors, right? So here's a guy who his whole existence is based on terror and killing people. And there's a place he won't go because he's afraid. And that's where God sent Kenneth and Christie and their children. And I'm going, what? I remember they came, we were over at the, at the Lee Heights building and, and they were right there on the front row and, and they're explaining where, where they're going and why they're going and I start doing research and I'm going, Man, these people are crazy. Do they realize how dangerous this is going to be for their family? It's because I didn't know. I didn't understand. God had not revealed that truth to me yet that, that He loves those children more than we do. God who is first and is best should have the first and the best. And to Him we should resign all of what is dear to us and most valuable. Firstborn are the joy and the hope of families. And God is saying, the joy and the hope that you have, that's mine. I'm claiming it. In, chapter, in verse 1 of chapter 13, He says, the firstborn are mine. And, and we can look at that and we can look at it two different ways. And we can look at it and say, God, that's awful selfish of you. Or we can look at it and say, the God of the universe, the God who created us, the God who loves us, the God that did all of this work in order to set us free, wants to take care of my baby. That's where we need to land. God is doing all of this to keep this truth in front of them forever. The truth is that we are God's possession that has been paid for at an incredible cost. That's what it cost for our redemption, was the Son of God. So church, are we making the communication of what God has done for us, that salvation, are we making that the most important thing in our lives? You need to ask yourself that question. Is the way that we're living our lives saying to our children, to our friends, to our family, to our co-workers that Jesus is our top priority? Because if we're going to join God to set people free, it must be our top priority. That can't be third, fourth, fifth, or sixth on our list or it'll never happen. We know that, right? People died. Thousands upon thousands of people died so that the Israelites could live. And God wants to make sure through this Passover feast that they never forget it. Jesus died so that we could live. He did this so that we could have the relationship with God that we have right now. We've been in this, in this study for five months. How's it going for you? Five months, we've been saying the same message, that God is calling us to join people to set free. And I had a professor tell me one time that you shouldn't be in ministry until you finish school because you might mess something up. He was wrong. He was wrong because God is working in your life right now. The intent for this study for God is not for you to sit here for a year or however long it takes us to go through the study and after the study is over for you to go, okay, now I'm ready. That's not how God works. Daily, God gives us a word for our lives and expects us to move in that right now. This study is for now. And I'm not saying these things to make you feel guilty. If you are guilty, you and God handle that. If you're not guilty, fantastic. 
I'm saying these things because the Lord is saying these things. I'm saying these things because this is important and we have to make sure that we're making it our top priority. Okay? Last point. God is redeeming His people through the consecration of the firstborn. So here what's, here's what is coming. Christ is the firstborn and will be sacrificed so that we, His children, can be redeemed. That's where the story is going. But God is beginning the story right now for Israel through this consecration of the firstborn. Also, by our union with Christ, we've now become sons and daughters. We are heirs to the kingdom. The kingdom of God. As the firstborn, Israel is now heirs of that, and so are we through Christ. God is preparing to re- His people to receive something that doesn't make sense to them. Let me, let, me, let me break that down for you, okay? God is taking a concept that is completely foreign to them and making it normal so that when the time is right for Jesus to come and make the sacrifice, it's going to be obvious what God's doing. Often we, we fall into the trap of we think we know how things work. And we base all of our decisions on that assumption. And then we find out that we actually didn't know what was going on and everything that we were doing was wrong. Let me break that down for you. I've shared with you guys that I I run, okay? I'm going to give you a little running analogy here. If you don't run, just hang in there with me. It'll make sense, okay? I hadn't run since January. I decided that's how I roll. My life is like this. I'll run really good for a while and then I'll get sidetracked and then not run at all for months. And then I'll decide, okay, I got to, you know, Got my dad bod going on. I got I to gotta chill out with this a little bit and, and get back to running. So this last week, I start running. And instead of doing things the way I should, I just, first day, out the gate, boom, ran a 5K. Tuesday, my legs were like, what are you doing? Okay? And so I've, I've run this week. And then yesterday, before I went to go for a run, I decided instead of just running all willy-nilly, I'm gonna, I've got apps that I use like everybody, I'm going to sign up for a little exercise program. And the first thing it had me do was called interval running. Instead of just running nonstop as far as you can, it has you run for one minute, walk for one minute. And we did that through 30 cycles, so it's a 30-minute workout. And so I did that. And then I got back home, and I started looking at the results of my runs, because I do that because I'm a nerd, okay? And, and what I saw was is that on Monday when I, when I started, I just ran as hard and as long and as far as I could. And I've worked out every day this week, so there's been no recoup time, which is dumb because I'm an idiot, but that's what I wanted to do. And, and I looked at the run from Monday, and I looked at the run from Tuesday, and I ran as hard and as fast as I could because in my mind, that's what makes sense. And my, my pace was, was 10 minutes and 12 seconds per mile. And then I did interval runs where I walk for a minute and run for a minute, and I looked at that time, and my pace was 10 minutes and 13 seconds. That doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense that if I run steady or if I run half of it and walk half of it that I'm going to have the same pace. And, and, and this run where I did the interval run, I went a half mile further. And I felt better when the run was over. For me, in my mind, that doesn't make sense. But I made a decision based on an assumption of what I thought was best. And then someone who knows something said, you're doing it wrong, do it this way, you're going to have a better workout and it's going to be better for you. And, and it was better. We approach our relationship with God. Israel approached their relationship with God thinking that they knew what was best for them. Okay? And, and look, when God gives us commands, often for us it is not going to make sense. And we don't need to find ourselves in a place where just because it doesn't make sense, we choose to not obey. God is going to call us to do things that are outside of our culture. 
Right now, our culture, and you know this, but I'm going to tell you anyway, our culture says that individually we are the most important things in our lives, right? Our culture says that having the right job is the most important thing. Our culture says that having the perfect picture of you wearing your favorite outfit outfit with the perfect plate of food at sunset and Instagram in it is the most important thing in your life. It's not, okay? What you feel is not the most important thing in life. I could go on and on, but I'm not going to. You guys know these things. Our culture doesn't say that God is the most important thing in our lives. They, you might hear someone say that, but it's just a facade. They're just saying it because, you know, it's a humble brag. Look how blessed I am. Jesus loves me. That's not what I'm talking about. You guys are laughing because you've done it. <laughs> we all have. Okay, look. We need, the last point I want to make. We need to remember daily that our freedom in Christ was costly. The freedom, the relationship that we enjoy had a huge cost. Jesus died for it. And we need to let that sink in. When we take the Lord's Supper, we talked about that last week, we need to let it sink in that we're drinking that that juice and we're eating that bread to remember that death happened so that we could have life. God instituted Passover so that Israel would remember that their freedom was costly and that the death of those thousands gave them life and freedom. God has already completed the work of Jesus for us by His death on the cross, but the story is not over yet. It did not end there, and our story is not over yet either. God has a call for you, and He has a call for us as a body, and He is going to accomplish the work that He started, and He wants to use us to do it. That is His intent. But the only way that happens is by us making God the top priority in our lives. In order for that to happen, the church has to make God its top priority. And I know that seems like a silly thing to say, but it needs to be said. Our call is not about filling these chairs. Our call is not about um, having the best looking building, obviously. Our call is about joining God to see the hurt, to see the brokenness, to see the hopelessness that's in people's lives and asking God, How do I join you in helping this person? How do I help you set them free from the bondage that they are enduring? God's redemption, God's freeing of His people has always been the most important thing for Him. And shouldn't it be our most important thing? Shouldn't it be what when we wake up in the morning, we say, all right, God, what you got today? How can I help? Let's pray. God, I, I ask that this week that you would open our eyes to the, to the things that are going on around us that we're oblivious to. That, Father, the areas where there's hurt and there's hopelessness and there's brokenness and there's pain, that, Father, you would, you would reveal those things to us, God, and that you would allow our hearts to be broken with yours and that you would uh, encourage us and that you would help us to become emotionally invested even though it's not convenient, even though it's not what we had planned, even though it's going to cost us things, that God, that you would make a shift in our hearts where it's not us deciding that we're just going to be better people or that we're going to try harder to pursue you, that you would make a change 
in who we are and that you would change the way we feel about you and about your people and that you would make it our priorities. Not because we have to, not because we ought to, but because we can't help but do it. God, I thank you for the price that was paid for my freedom and for my sin. God, I ask that you would just keep that before me, that you would allow me to to be emotionally invested in the work that you're doing in my life and in those around me. In Jesus' name we pray.